Digital Gonzo, episode 81, dated Thursday the 13th of June, 2012. Alien 3. Here, in a world where the sun burns gold. And the wind blows colder. A visitor has come. But not by herself. It started. Suspense is back. And we have no weapons of any kind. The fear is back. And most of all, the bitch is back. <laughs> Alien 3. This is the fourth of seven reviews of the Alien movies. So far we've covered Alien, Aliens and Prometheus. Now it's time to cover the less beloved, less successful and less critically acclaimed installments. Movies that arguably were made for the sake of extending and eventually milking the franchise, adding increasingly absurd directions to the established story. Leah Haydu of Gamadork is apparently back from the dead with a gaping hole in her chest proving she was an artificial person all along. I mean, sometimes I don't have feelings, but now I do. Can they're hurt? Dude, she looks like an elf for that entire film. <laughs> okay. A man with an IQ far, far higher than 85, Matt Ramsey of Dork Tunes. Good evening. Shaving his head to stave off lice the size of kittens, it's Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Thank you for having me. Fresh from a hardcore session of punching rapists, it's Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet. Hello. And James Perkins of Geekward is suffering from a major sore throat and a tummy ache. Let's see what comes up in tonight's show. Good evening. While it's arguable that Blade Runner stands as more of an achievement for Ridley Scott, all of the other directors have had their crowning glories outside the Alien series. James Cameron directed Terminator 2. David Fincher directed Fight Club. Jean-Pierre Jeunet was at the helm of the wonderful Amelie, Paul W.S. Anderson made the side-splitting Mortal Kombat movie, and the brothers Strauss once did two poos that looked exactly the same. (laughs) 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 Alien 3 was conceived in the interim six years after Aliens. There was a lot of alien interest between that time. Dark Horse published a series of comics that continued the journeys of Ripley, Hicks and Newt, who were rechristened Wilkes and Billy to fit in with Alien 3 continuity, because how can you write about uh, an ex-Marine and a young girl who have encountered the aliens if they're supposed to be dead? There was a line of toys to tie in with a really badly thought-out Saturday morning cartoon named Operation Aliens. Those slimy aliens have taken over the rec center. No, Ripley, what are we going to do? We call the Colonial Marines. Corporal Hex, rocket launcher expert. Kaboom! Vasquez, tough-fighting woman soldier. Pizza time! Capone, master of disguise. <laughs> Rocky Balboa, fastest distance bag. Adrian! Big colorful sprite. That's me! Versus the never-ending threat of General Alien. Your mind, Space Marines. Who wants a face hug? Hudson! Operation Aliens! Coming to save the day!
unfortunately, the derision heaped upon Alien 3 killed that cartoon in the pilot stage and pretty much destroyed the series until it was resurrected five years later before dying again in a pool of its own filth. So imagine, in those six years, what ideas must have bounced around to create the following monumental smorgasbord of multi-buggery. The initial idea was for a pair of Alien films shot back-to-back, and this was just after Back to the Futures 2 and 3 had proved that that sort of thing could be done, but before Lord of the Rings was done to incredible effect. And it was supposed to detail a conflict between Wayland yutani and the UPP, a group of colonial separatists who had been breeding the Xenomorph. Ripley would cameo in the first one, which would actually showcase Corporal Hicks, but she'd be the lead in the second. Due to leaking onto the website as on the internet before it was the internet, the UPP here have filtered down into hardcore alien fanfic, and even feature in Aliens Infestation on the DS, even though they've never been mentioned in the official movie. Sci-fi writer William Gibson wrote a script that became the first of 30 drafts by many other writers. This Dwayne Hicks of the Space Marines version of Alien 3 was going to be very action-oriented, and Rennie Harlan, who would soon helm Die Hard 2, was set to direct. The alien concept also changed and became an airborne parasite that transformed people from within, leading to a neat Cold War paranoia tone of not knowing who was about to become an alien, much like... anyone? The Thing. Yep, John Carpenter's The Thing. If you're going to steal, steal from the best, eh? The next version was written by Eric Red of Near Dark and the Hitcher fame. His version took place on a floating, domed, small-town USA and had alien mosquitoes, alien dogs, alien cattle, alien chickens, and eventually the entire space station turned into an alien. Rennie Harlan walked out, Red was fired, Guyler and Hill abandoned the idea of doing two films back-to-back. David Toohey, who would later go on to direct Pitch Black, wrote yet another script involving genetic experiments, spiked aliens, chameleon aliens, newborn hybrid aliens, cloning, and people getting sucked out of a small hole into space. Vincent Ward, who was at that time attached to direct, didn't like it and started his own script. Fox president Joe Roth wanted Weaver in the film, declaring that she was the centerpiece of the series and that she was the only female warrior we have in our movie mythology. Hence, Ripley was crowbarred back into the story. Vincent Ward's plan was to have a wooden planet populated by monks. These religious zealots see Ripley's arrival as a trial of temptation and the alien as punishment. They lock Ripley in the basement, despite the fact that she has an alien growing inside her, and leave her to fight the creature that they believe to be the devil. Elements of this made it into the final film, although without the one-mile-wide wooden planet, which simply wouldn't work in a world that had already been established as mostly based on physics. Ward was fired as a writer, as were many others, and production began without a finished script and with the project already $7 million in the hole. David Fincher was brought on very late and it shot in the freezing winter of 1991 at Pinewood Studios in England. Everybody was upset and depressed and Fox executives continued to meddle with production, eventually taking the film away from Fincher and re-editing it, even going so far as to release a cheap, confusing teaser trailer that seemed to imply Alien 3 was set on Earth. In 1979, we discovered in space... No one can hear you scream. In 1992, we will discover on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. It's maybe the worst trailer in the world? Maybe? 
<laughs> but then there's another one which goes three times the action, three times the fear. And it's like, no, that's wrong on both counts. Also, it's technically it's alien cubed. It's alien to the power of three. That, that doesn't even work, but carry on. Fincher disowned the whole project and went on to direct Seven, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, and Zodiac, amongst others. The alien itself was a combination of Tom Woodruff Jr. in a suit and a rod puppet shot against blue screen, hence the odd lighting effects that make it appear like early CGI. Thankfully, we were spared the early concept of a whippet in an alien suit, which were more hilarious than they were terrifying. Woodruff Jr. later went on to play the aliens in Resurrection and both the Predator crossovers. A number of cast and crew associated with the series, including actor Michael Bean, previous director James Cameron, and novelist Alan Dean Foster, expressed their frustration and disappointment with the film's story. Cameron in particular regarded the decision to kill off the characters of Bishop Newton Hicks as a slap in the face to him, and and to the fans of the previous film. Bean, upon learning of Corporal Dwayne Hicks's demise, demanded and received almost as much money for the use of his likeness in one scene as he'd been paid for his role in Aliens. They just had one, like, blurry digital photo of him on the computer screen, and he got paid the same amount again. But he deserved it, frankly. A novelisation of the film was authored by Foster. His adaptation includes many scenes that were cut from the final film, some of which later appeared in the assembly cut. Foster wanted his adaptation to differ from the film's script, which he disliked, but Walter Hill declared that he should not alter the storyline. Foster later commented, So, out with my carefully constructed motivations for the principal prisoners, my preserving the life of Newt, her killing in the film as an obscenity, and much else. Embittered by this experience, that's why I turned down Resurrection. One of the great ways that Elliot Goldenthal starts off his score is with the 20th Century Fox fanfare and the significant change he makes to it, which I actually really, really like. So uh, check it out. list of talking points in front of me let's uh let's get our teeth into them so the plot can anyone tell me what happened in the eev that's the emergency evacuation vehicle the thing that flies out at the beginning the confluence of events what happened who, who, who did what i'm not totally sure um it's suggested that there is an electronic fire that caused some problems. I don't know how that happened. Uh, I don't think the alien did it, the facehugger, I mean, because like, all he did was crawl out of his egg and, you know, spray some acid on one of the sleeping tubes and then um, attach itself to Ripley's face. So I don't know how that happened unless the Queen was, like, sabotaging the ship behind the scenes and aliens. Uh... Messing with the wires, I don't know. Although it is, we've we've got to point out that actually caused the fire. The acid burnt through a wire caused the short, which caused an electrical fire. Mm. Oh, okay. Also, as well, uh, when the face hugger comes out of the egg, it seems to be. It looks like it's approaching Newt's stasis pod, cryo tube. But obviously, we find out later in the film that it is. It was actually on Ripley's face when it showed like that. You, you know, X-ray vision thing 
on the screen and it showed a face hooker on her face. Thought it was Newt, but obviously I'm... she she was just completely obliterated by the by the impact. Oh no, no, she drowned in her crunchy. In 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 terrible oh, yeah, fear, just... panic, and pain. It's important to note for that because you can see the the look of absolute agony on her face. Hmm. So yeah, cheers for that one. Uh, who who allows like I don't understand how that happens. Um, oh, emergency! Flood the tubes in water. That sounds like a. Sa- I don't understand. In how case that- of fire, drown people. Drown the people. <laughs> in the well, you wouldn't want to burn to death, would you? I mean, just put the fire out. <laughs> I was going to say, preferable death: drowning or burning to death. What? Just put the fire out. Have you got scutters or something like little mobile fire things? You got to kill the entire crew in case there's a little fire. So, yeah, another thing I've got to ask, uh, if the face saga burned through the cryotube to get to what we now know as Ripley, um, it, enough to actually create enough smoke to set off the fire extinguishers, fire alarms. I mean, what, what, why weren't there fire extinguishers? I mean, the local Gap has fire extinguishers. This is like $70 billion warship. It's a, mil- it's a military ship. Like, they have explosives and weapons on board. They should have safety protocols for that kind of thing. Drown the crew. It's the only Drown way. the crew. <laughs> it would appear that one face hugger was laid because they only ever show one egg, right? And that face hugger face hugs Ripley, puts a queen inside her, and then just hangs around, waits until a dog turns up, and then jumps on the dog, or indeed the ox in the assembly cut. Um, so either it's one face hugger with with two eggs, or there were two eggs and two face huggers. Um. I like to think there are two eggs simply because it's been established in Alien that the facehugger just falls over and dies once it's finished. You like to think, but they never bloody show. Well, no, they don't. I'm filling in the gaps there, but... Um, so yeah, then, then, then uh, the the makers of the film, all of them together, not just Finch, not just everyone, all put together, brutally murder Corporal Dwayne Hicks by having a big pole fall through his face. And I don't know if you watched the extras on it; they actually show close-ups of the model they created. It's it's very you can't quite see it in this, but it's basically a man that has been split in two, and you can see his skull going. Ah! It's like let's yeah, just think of the most horrible way we can kill these characters. And yeah, I suppose Bishop had already been completely squished and crushed. So, and when we see what happens to his face in the, uh, in the uh, later on, so yeah, that that 
This is the thing that I think people really have a problem with straight off, that they kill these characters so unceremoniously, so horribly. I mean, and then later on there's that really uncomfortable autopsy of Newt, where you're just like, your flesh is crawling as they're actually doing, you know, violating her corpse in order to see if it's an alien or not. Um, yeah, that's, that's how the film starts. So everyone who'd already, you know, loved these characters and invested so much in them is like, oh. So automatically you've yanked the rug out from under everyone and you replace those characters that everyone likes with a bunch of bald-headed rapist murderers who do nothing but swear. I have to admit, like, I do, I do like some of the characters that uh-huh. we meet at the prison. Wh- which characters? I mean, uh, Clemens is Clemens, excellent yeah. as a yeah. character. Yeah. Charles Dance. Yes. I'm astonished that Charles Dance hadn't had more roles than he actually ended up having throughout his career, up to the point where he played Tywin Lannister. Yeah, he's great. Um, and I, there are a lot of great actors there. Um, you've got the uh, Peter O'Toole, who's sadly died now. Uh, not Peter O'Toole. What are you talking what, about? What am I talking about? I'm talking what? about somebody else. Who's the guy? Brian Glover. Who's Alien 3, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Who's not doing uh, Prometheus. <laughs> Sorry. No. Brian who's, Glover. Mr. Who, Andrews. Who? No, not him. Oh, never mind. Don't worry. Move on. Since may I remind you, Mr. Clemens... Yes, there we go. Him. He has not taken out until the alien gets on him, and then <laughs> the alien takes everything out. Are you talking about Pete Postlethwaite? Yeah, yes. that's who I was Pete talking about. Yeah. He, is, he is... I don't even know his name, but he is uh, good fun when he's there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, like Mr. Andrews, he's also dead. What, what I would say is, I don't actually have... The concept of killing those characters is not what I have an issue with. It's that they just treat it kind of just... Like, okay, we killed those characters, moving on. Like, we had no emo- as if we had no emotional investment in mm-hmm. those characters whatsoever. I mean, if you're going to kill Newt, have it be like this horrible moment, like halfway through the movie. Do a dark night, you know, um, where it's unexpected and it's meant to make you feel something real, you know, pull at your heartstrings. If Ripley already knows she's going, she's got a queen in her, the whole idea is that she's now setting out to try to save Newt because she knows she's going to die herself and that the younger generation should go on. And then if you have her yanked away at that point, I'm sure Carrie Hem would have come back. Yeah. And Michael Bean was expecting to. Well, but bloody, I mean, why kill Bishop if you're going to have Lance Henriksen in the film twice? <laughs> <laughs> uh. <sighs> It's, it's a simple way, way of cutting ties to the previous films so that they can focus on this film. But they do it with a butcher knife rather yeah. than a scalpel. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, just a complete lack of skill in mm. doing that. It could have been, it's one of those things where I understand what you're trying to do, but it could have been handled so much better. And it doesn't help... Yeah, you mentioned the autopsy scene mm. uh, before. That's like driving the nail home. It's like, okay, thanks for rubbing the salt in the wound, David Fincher. You don't need to... Uh, uh, Again, I'm going to keep saying they. I don't think we can pin any one situation on any one person. Um, And poor David. David doesn't want anything to do with this film. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, he could have maybe made the film a bit less nihilistic. Because to the very beginning, it's this cold, dark chaotic, unpleasant place. Now that, clearly he loves Alien. Specifically Alien over Aliens. He has gone out of his way to make it look 
in a, a similar world to Alien, and that I at least applaud him for. But unfortunately, it's we've already we've received this warmth in, at the end of Aliens, and then to have it yanked away, it it really does a number on Ripley herself, and it really helps to uh, to evolve her character. But it also makes the audience feel just genuinely unpleasant and out of place. The only reason I assume they cut them out so so utterly and so quickly was so that Ripley didn't have any backup. Mm. No one was there to support her story. Three people agreeing with the same story uh, is... Yeah, you, yeah. Have, you kind of have to give that some credence. One person saying a, a story as fabulous as this just one... becomes a crazy one. You can one. just assume she's insane and just ignore her to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess that's kind of why they did it. I don't really like the way they did it, but I can kind of see why they did uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily have even helped them if, if all three of them had been like, right, we got we, there's probably an alien out there that they could then, you know, tell them this thing's got acid for blood. Not that that would have made any difference, but um, oh, actually, yeah, the acid spitting. I, I put this in um, the Alien Resurrection. I don't think they've been able to spit acid before, but this one does suddenly, and it, it spits it at the. It had some time in the pod to, you know, get its shit together, start, uh, start practicing. Let's just go back to characters again a little bit, because there are some good ones. Clemens, like I said, is really, really good. He's very dignified. He's got um, a weight to him. He doesn't much. You believe that he would take on board what Ripley says, and he confides in her, and then the moment that he gets killed, the film suddenly goes, ugh. And it just lets out this gust of weight, and there's a big emptiness in between. And then the midsection of the film is so much worse than the first section. And you've already had to undergo the, the, the pain of, of, of this separation. And then suddenly, most of the middle of the film is just bald men swearing at each other and getting killed. Just to comment on Clements. Um, yeah. I really like how the uh, movie treats the character in that he is uh, sympathetic towards Ripley and is trying to comfort her, but he's not stupid. Um, like the scene during the autopsy where um, Ripley's trying to convince him that we're looking for infection, but of course he's a doctor. He knows you don't have to open up somebody's rib cage to see if they're suffering from cholera or something like that. So I like that he's trying to make her feel like you know comfortable, but isn't. He isn't gullible. He's not just, you know, uh, he's not playing along with her because he believes her, what she's saying. He's playing along with her because he's trying to comfort somebody who's clearly gone through some trauma, which mm. I think is a clever way of doing that character. I was just going to say, as an extension of that, um, I like how they, they treat the uh, relationship that develops between um, him and Ripley. Um, it would be, it would have been very, very easy, and in another type of film, possibly Alien Resurrection type film I think they probably would have done to have sort of this sex starved man who dives on her and that becomes the the cornerstone of the way they interact with each other but he's not he's very sort of it's probably Charles Dance a lot of the way but it's he's sort of very British and reserved about the whole thing and it it happens but it's in more of a a, a mutual agreement kind of way rather than a, a you know driving hormonal thought. well it's her that initiates it isn't it mm, she, yeah. she's uh, She's the sex-deprived one. Um, <laughs> to be fair, 200 years, that's a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 57, time. she's not done the 200 yet. That's oh. Alien Resurrection. Oh, how long is there between... 57 years. 
What, between, no, between uh, two and two and three? three? Oh, I, I, I always oh, thought no time. it wasn't yeah, that a few much months. time at all. Yeah, just a few months. Okay, fair enough then. No, no, 200 years is um, Alien Resurrection. Right, time. okay, fair enough. But they they take 200-year-old blood samples. 57 years is a long time, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Mr. Andrews, the, uh, the, the foreman of the uh, jail, uh, is, is Brian Glover, pretty much the same as he is in uh, American Werewolf in London. Loudmouthed, northern, won't listen to anyone else. Uh, he is there to perfectly exemplify um, the patronising company man in the face of Ripley and despite the fact that he clearly knows a lot less about the situation is is happy to relegate every you know even extreme possible danger to the background as long as it doesn't disrupt things I felt like he was just there to when he finally dies he's there to be the one character where you're like yay he died thank yeah. god now he can get something done um, but I think his death is more just a case of right. Everyone's been following him, albeit grudgingly, for years now. Take him away. Who the fuck do they follow? Just so that Ripley can now step up and actually start leading. Mm. Um, Dylan, who's the other proto leader, not, not much about him. He is he is stern. He is um, very attached to all of his the, the morals and ideals that they've been living on. He's stubborn. He's able to sacrifice himself at the end and and everybody else uh, because he can see that this is this is a very very serious situation. But he's not really much of a character. You certainly don't really like him. Charles S. Dutton. This is. I I think um, that character would have been better if they you know spent more time with him to get a better understanding of his background and who he was because you know all those people in that prison were murderers and rapists and serial killers so what happened to him and and in what happened to him in that prison that made him change so much from clearly he must have been a monster at some point so if we had a better understanding of what made him tick maybe we would have cared about him more but Hmm. yeah uh there's 85 um Whose character uh, is just dumb. That's his character. He's dumb. He's dumb. He's there to have things explained to him and to explain things to people. And uh, he's played by Ralph Brown from Withnell and I. Good. That's presuming Ed. Danny, the uh, the dealer. And interestingly enough, Golic, played by Paul McGann, uh, was I from Withnell and I. Have a guess at who was originally going to be cast as Clemens. Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. Who <coughs> oh, I think would have done a ruddy, ruddy good job of it, but it would have been a weird Withnell and I reunion where they'd all <laughs> been horribly killed by the alien. Or, in, in the case of 85, shot by an evil android. Those guys were androids. That whole discussion Those guys went were androids. over my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a British film. I figured, dumb American. I, well, it's a really good film. <laughs> Withnell and I. Check it out. I'm afraid I can't offer you gentlemen anything. Alright, Danny. We decided to lay up for a bit. That's what I thought. Except for personal use, I concur with you. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking of retiring and going into business. Doing what? The toy industry. Yeah, my partner's got a really good idea for making dolls. His name's Presuming Ed. It's just to give him the idea. She got a doll on Christmas, what pisses itself. Really? Yeah, then you got to change its drawers for it. 
solvable really, but they're like that, the little girls. So we're going to make one that shits itself as well. Shits itself? He's an expert. He's building the prototype now. Has he just been busted? No. Then why is he wearing that old suit? Old suit? This suit was cut by Hawks of Savile Row. Just because the best tailoring you've ever seen is above your fucking appendix doesn't mean anything. Very, very foolish words, mate. He's right. Look at him. His mechanism's gone. He's had more drugs than you've had hot dinners. I'm not having this shag sack insulting me. Let him get his drugs out. This doll is extremely dangerous. It has voodoo qualities. Paul McGann there, the Golic, the, the psychopath who um, wavers between Liverpudlian and Charlie Manson, um, was uh, the uh, Eighth Doctor yep. in the Doctor Who pantheon. The Doctor Who movie. You wouldn't think it to look at him. No, I mean, when I, when I first watched uh, Alien 3, I think it must have been about two or three years ago, um, I was like, oh, Paul McGann's in it. Wait, who is he in this? <laughs> I was right. like, what? I didn't see him in this movie. <laughs> but then, obviously, looking uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more closely, I was like, oh, I see. Well, he looks nothing like him. Yep. And as a final character is Mr. Morse, who is basically Johnny Rotten. Danny Whip. <laughs> um, they, they do expand Gollick's character a little bit in the uh, assembly cut, don't they, Mitch? You saw that last night. There's more of him. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, he kind of he, he's in awe of the alien itself, and so at the point where they try to trap it in the assembly cup, they actually managed to they manage to trap it in that toxic waste disposal place, and then he just lets it out like a prat, and yep. it of course kills him. And then scurries on down it's the hallway. It's an ungrateful shit. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, when it comes to talking about the prisoners, there's the thing that you asked yesterday, Sharon, or a couple of days ago when we watched this, was they're all hyper-religious, right? But they're on another planet. How does their religion fit in with deep, deep space travel? Especially since they appear to have carved out themselves their own personal hell. Anyone want to answer this one? Because it's not really an affectionate view on religion. Well, they're not... They weren't religious beforehand. They picked this up. It's it's like going to prison and finding God in prison. They are, they've been sequestered here for this long, and the the religion thing, I, I kind of took it as that's really all that was keeping them together and all that was keeping them going because they had to be there. And then when they had the option to go back to quote-unquote normal society, they chose to remain behind because now that's kind of all they know, and putting them back to something uh, a little bit more standard would just would just screw everything up again mm.
Okay, the music. Elliot Goldenthal, who is um, actually usually very accomplished. This was before he did the music for Batman Forever, um, which is abominable. But uh, the music in this is actually really quite effective. From the very beginning, there's that really haunting first track. is actually um, translated as Lamb of God, the idea being that these prisoners are being offered up to the beast, to, to God. And it's, I suppose it's what Prometheus was trying to do and what Sunshine achieves, which is to put regular people up against the awesome power of uh, force of nature that could be interpreted as God. It's really moody, kind of grinding, church organ type type music the whole way through, and uh, it's actually one of the, the better aspects of this film. It's not a it's not a happy score. It's not a happy film at all. It's a very it's a deeply unhappy, depressing film. It's a film about ruin and rust and despair. I think that owes a lot to David Fincher. Uh, he brings a lot of his style to this movie. Uh, you watch Seven and it's kind of similar. Seven's a far superior movie to this, but a lot of the same, um, you know, cinematography, the kind of the way he shoots stuff, the color palette, stuff like that, it feels very similar to Alien 3. Um, and it just this kind of very cynical, like everything sucks and everything's dirty and everything's muggy and grubby um, in the environment every, uh, people live in. So... I, I, I think that's one of the highlights of the movie for me, actually, is the way it looks. There's just this consistent horribleness to it in, a, in the best possible way. It just looks like an awful place to live. Although, interestingly, both in the case of this and Seven, it just made me think, well, why don't you just leave? This is rubbish. It doesn't get worse than this. Just leave. Go somewhere sunny. I, I don't get the mentality of the people who stay in the city in Seven. Uh, Zantiriad, if he's listening, loads Seven, and David Fincher in general. Yeah, I'm fairly certain that Alien 3 is not going to be particularly high on his list of uh, favourite films. Anybody else notice the hanging chains? Oh, yes. Yeah. All over the place. Yeah. We, uh, more so than Alien, actually. Yeah. We can use this actually to talk about set design because that's one of the accomplishments of this film. It's pine wood and they really make you believe that it's this giant, horrible, ruinous factory. Like a refinery. It's, it, if they'd shot it in a factory, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. In fact, they did actually do some external shots uh, in a factory in uh, northern Britain. But uh, for the inside, it was all in Pinewood, and that's a genuine achievement. So, yeah, I mean, the, the set designers can't really be faulted here when they were given a remit to make the most depressing, horrible, hellish place, and they managed it. So that's at least good. And like I said, the, the dirty yellow and rusty colour scheme is uh, reminiscent of the original Alien. So that's good. So let's talk about the alien itself. Uh, who's got something to say on this one? I do. I kind of like the idea they introduce in this film, um, in that the alien kind of takes on some of the characteristics of the animal that it was gestating in. So mm -hmm. this alien is uh, much more... It's four-legged because it was gestating in a dog or, or an ox... <laughs> or an ox, depending on which version which of the film. More dog-like than it is like an ox. So. Yeah. But anyway, so it's it's four-legged, um, which is dog-like, I suppose. But it seems faster as well. It's, it feels leaner. Um, mm. It's not as 
big and you know imposing as the original alien in alien one and two um i like the design but some of those the special effects look really dated now look really bad is it just like a puppet um on a blue screen it's a basically just imagine a half scale puppet on blue sticks which they walk along and then just on a giant blue diorama and then they just superimpose that onto the screen and then just edit out the sticks so that it appears to be running along and then they just play it at double speed yeah and you can tell yeah Um, the light does not fall on it in the right way Whenever it's like the when it's whenever it's a close up on the alien and you see the animatronic you know face that we're all used to by the guy now, in the suit yeah um, it it looks good and I like that they've gone back uh, to the smooth headed alien mm. I know Matt likes the ridge head but I prefer the smooth head because I'm like that I also really love a bit when when it bears down on Ripley and goes <laughs> and like. It's this close to her. That is a genuinely iconic moment. Because it's never been more threatening as a creature ever than then. I also like that um, the alien is quite intelligent in this film. Um, Well, depending on which cut you watch. um, In the original cut, uh, their first plan to try and trap the alien goes awry because the alien uh, speci- it feels like to me it specifically targets somebody because it knows something's up and then sabotages the entire operation mm. in the uh, of the assembly cut uh, it's just because some idiot let the alien out and then it happened but um, I also like that the alien is not just a killing machine that it recognises oh wait um, there's a queen inside uh, Ripley. Leave her be. Like that's going to be important for my species' future. Mm. Um, so I like I like that they they paint the alien as not a completely mindless murdering machine. It does think about things. It is logical. Mm. I kind of saw that more as a <clears throat> an instinctive reaction. Um, an alien, you know, can recognise an implanted host and therefore leaves it alone uh, rather than actual a conscious decision it's more of like an instinctive reaction um, but that kind of added to the the more animalistic look of the the dog alien if you want to call it that but it it's, does, yeah, it's, it's not simply a mindless killing machine no yeah that does smack more of a, a an instinctive response or a you know a, a response to pheromones or something like that that it can detect something that's chemically changed about Ripley because she's carrying a queen. One thing you said about uh, the alien in this one, Sharon, you said he was kind of like Grendel in um, Beowulf, which I completely get in that it's it's like these guys all huddled together inside the uh, the mead hall talking about this beast outside that will come for them. It, it does have that kind of mythological feel to it now. Like it's, this, it's this creature, it's this dragon that exists in the shadows. I do like the way that they've made the alien... That's scary. The problem comes when the alien starts killing people that you don't give a toss about. Because you just go, yeah, that one bald man's dead, now that other bald man's dead. Oh, there's another bald man running. I wonder if he'll die. Oh, he did indeed. And if, I don't care. Do not care. Don't care which bald man die. I know Dylan, I know Ripley. That's about it at this point. They shouldn't have killed Clemens so early. 
I agree with that. It's just hmm. I I don't know any of the characters' names from the later parts because there's just so many of them and they don't have time to give them any characterization because all they're doing is running around and dying. So I'm I don't swearing. Really care. Yeah, well, yes, okay, they do. They do some of that. <laughs> When I was a kid, the swearing was really great because you never saw films of swearing in it. Now, it's not. I don't mind... Swearing can be fucking awesome. But in this, <laughs> it, it just it's tiresome, eventually. Anyone ever seen that documentary where Giga talks about what he was going to do for the alien in this film? No. What was right. he going to do? This is where it becomes apparent how mental this man is. Uh, he was, he's talking about how... Um, well, maybe the alien gets out and is looking at all the monks, and maybe the monks have been trying to kiss each other because they are men and they are men alone. So maybe the alien is more of a sexual being, and maybe it sort of maybe wants to kiss a man. And when it kisses the man, you see the tongue goes in. Basically, that this tongue was this long barbed thing. Now it evolved from the little extra maw and goes all the way in and come inside the man and pull out his skeleton. What? So, basically, where the alien in the first movie just wanted a hug, these aliens just want a kiss? <laughs> they want a kiss, and they want to eat your skeleton. <laughs> and it, he designed a new alien with much more sort of feminine features, where it looked like this sort of, like a woman's jawline with the, the, the alien carapace there. And he'd, he'd gone mental on it. They commissioned him to do this, and then they went... Actually, Giga, you know what? We're probably not going to need that extra alien. We got our own design on it, but thank you very much. We're still going to give you an, ori- an original credit on that, and that's why it says original alien character designed by H.R. Giga. So, but yeah, I mean, w- look at the stuff he was going to do because it's fascinating. It's bollocks, and it doesn't fit in at all with the Alien series, but it's interesting. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like a different franchise, the yeah. uh, alien that just wants to kiss and then kills you. Um, it's, it's Species, which so HR Giga... God, yeah, it is. Well, of course, if you look at all the, the designs of Species, it's so Giga. It's, it's yeah. totally Giga. It's, it's just uh, unfortunate that the film sucks donkey balls. Indeed. <laughs> As does the alien made the one to suck the donkey balls, put the donkey's balls in his mouth, and then he pulled out his skeleton. Gordon Carroll, he asked me to do some um, creatures, new creatures. They want redesign the alien monsters. He wanted to have a, an erotic alien also. So I made my um, uh, lips and the chin. With this part, you can make a uh, erotic lady you you don't need more than that this part the first alien I did was more a human being and the third one a third film it's more a beast more elegant all the mistakes or the not nice forms I try here to make it better to make it more elegant more quick and uh, more uh, aesthetic there are, for instance, these tubes on the back. I did them because of the long skull. If he stands, but if he he's like a beast, then the long head is just over the over the shoulder. It, it he need he doesn't need any supporting. This is also an idea of Giger and me, the kind of the swords in between of the fingers. So he can like touch and suddenly schwatch the swords are coming out through the 
fingers. And um, then the tongue, the tongue of the first alien was so like a, uh, in a way not organic. It was a tube with, with these teeth in front. It was really not. So I make a very elegant tongue like a, like a sword. They can roll the tongue out, push out, and then it goes the victim good in the in the mouth and by pulling back the whole interior of the of the <laughs> victim came out it must be hor- horrible then i have some design of the kiss there are different kind of kisses <laughs> one there probably he, he could this uh, Alien could be very erotic and there are a lot of monks here and probably it could be a situation where they kiss each other and come close with the lips and then like here and then finally and probably you see the eye open a little bit and then you see some blood running between the lips and then it he pulls out and then it will be like that a little bit. I mean, <laughs> this one with the kiss was tilted behind his head and now he's going at everything back. Here, the poor guy uh, is, has pointed the lips for a kiss, but he kissed him in the eye. And the Bambi design, yeah, that was the idea of Mr. Fincher to have a Bambi like, it shouldn't be like the chest burster. Uh, ugly thing. It should be Bambi, uh, so a, a creature you like in a way, but not too nice. And uh, first, my de- my first design was too nice. There has been uh, like little bears, so I made it longer, longer feet, and also a little, uh, yes, like Bam- Bambi is a, a little helpless. That it's the ox who was attacked by a face hugger. They didn't know, and they cut him off, and then the ba- baby alien came out. The baby alien looked like... If we were to incorporate all of Giger's designs, I think it would have... It just would have been impossible. He had so many ideas. And we were at a point where we had to just dive into it. You know, we had, we had sort of lost time during the months while the script was being revised without the start date being pushed. And, and when that script was ready, it's like... You had to jump on it right away, so there was no more time to really develop things in tandem with Giger. It was just one month's time to talk, and then was uh, I didn't hear anything. I think they had no time to do it. I think I I did much too much for for them, and the time was short. And uh... interestingly enough, though, regarding the alien, the best scene is absent. And that is when Ripley approaches the uh, alien, tries to get it to attack her, and it lowers itself down. She goes, <gasps> and then it cuts to her telling Dylan that it wouldn't kill her. What do you mean, it wouldn't kill? Show! Don't tell! Show! Give us a scene where the alien is running its head all over Ripley's body and just sort of, you know, just feeling her out. And then and, and you realise at the one point that from, it goes from being incredibly threatening to basically being almost subservient to Ripley. That would be visual storytelling. That would be fantastic. But they didn't fucking do it. And that's frustrating. I like the idea, though. Um, but, yeah, again, it's execution that's the problem. Um, also, you need to explain why Ripley doesn't just 
plunge the pole into its fucking head. But you can't do that if you're trying to do that scene. Then you don't have a movie. And the other thing about the alien that is rather important, what's it doing? Yeah, because it's not... It's not preparing bodies for, like, a queen, is it? It's just Which it knows people. is coming, I might add. Yeah, and... It doesn't make sense. Um, because if he kills everyone, then the queen is just going to be sitting there going, Now what? Well, this is rubbish. Cheers. Thanks. Just you and me, then, huh? Well, build me a nest, okay? Maybe some company will be by sometime. Yeah, no, what it actually should have done is uh, lobotomise all these guys and then plaster them to the wall and wait for the Queen. There's a scene where the alien is clearly eating somebody. And it's never implied in any of the other yeah, films that's what the I was alien actually eats people. It's, or anything, frankly. It's suggested that the alien in the other films is kind of self-sufficient, that the body just works without any input. It doesn't need water, it doesn't need air, it doesn't need food. So why is it eating people? It doesn't make sense. But it's not really eating them, it's just maiming them to the point of death. Yeah. Maybe it so, likes playing with flesh, I don't know. It's, it's like a rabid dog. It's just flying about between the place, place, just killing everyone that it sees. Which is fine, but then when it sees Ripley, it should be just as rabid. But it goes, ah, oh, no, hold on, there's a queen there. I'll get back to the rabid killing. Way off I go. So... Yeah, if you, if you watch it, in Alien, it would appear it was actually trying to prepare at least Dallas and Brett for something. In Aliens, they don't kill you, they don't kill you. That's a direct line that Ripley says. That's the reason why when she finds Newt, Newt has been plastered to the wall. In this, no, they kill you. Just maim you to death. I had no, <clears throat> see, I had no problem with the fact that the alien appeared to be eating one of the bodies. It kind of made sense. It's an animal. It, you know, it needs to get energy from somewhere. But yeah, the fact that it just sort of dis- you know, destroys people left, right, and centre without doing it, and then just chows down on one particular body, and then stops and pisses off. It, it was yeah, an odd, an odd way to sort of put that that in there. Really, so there were seventeen uh, convicts and staff on uh, Fury One Six One. There could have been seventeen aliens if it had played its cards right. Just wait, just wait. All I was going to say was that if it was genuinely trying to eat them, why does it have to kill so many people in a row? So it, like, like the, Any biologist or scientist will tell you the safest time to approach a predator is when it's eating, because mm. it's got its food. Why would it bother with you? Like, a lion is not going to attack you while it's chowing down on some zebra. I would say so after it's eaten would probably be I was going to say, time. it might yeah. go for you if you while think it's eating, it would defend you. When it's eating, it's so full. Cool. You know what I mean. I'm never eating zebra again. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not just going to go, okay, I've killed this guy. Oh, all right, I'm going to kill another guy because I'm that hungry. Um,. I need 17 guys to fill me up because I'm a hungry alien. That is what she said. Too obvious. I'm trying to be good. I was told we had a time limit. Yeah, you'll be real glad to know that everybody's back in this movie. Hicks? Rafaela De Laurentiis, who I was doing this movie for, a little movie that I won't mention the name of. Time bomb. She had been over to the Pinewood Studios, and she said she saw my character, Hicks, made up of like a dummy character of me laying on the ground with my chest opened up as if the alien came out of me 
I said, oh, that's interesting. So I called my agent, who's Ed Lamato, who's like way up there. And I said, Ed, what the fuck, man? I mean, it's one thing not to be in it. It's another thing for me to have had fucking that alien come back in me and have it come out of my chest with, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, no fucking way can they do this, can they? And he said, no, man, that's your likeness, and they can't, so on and so forth. So he called them up, and he said, I don't know how far they got, but they were told that they, they, they couldn't do that, and we would get we would sue them. And so first they started saying, well, can we pay Michael for this? Can we pay? We'll, we'll pay him a certain amount of money. I said, I do not. I don't care how much money you have. I was really stupid back then. I don't care how much money you have. That alien is not coming out of my chest, okay? And uh, so that was that. So then we got a call, you know, a month or two later that they wanted to use my photograph. I said, now you can pay me. <laughs> so they did. So I I got paid almost as much for that photograph as I did for the first movie that I did. So in certain respect, it it uh, it helped a little bit. But it was uh, that was all done through like gritted teeth and them saying, well, you know, uh, yeah, okay, we'll pay you. And I'll say, well, you'll pay me more and back and forth and so on and so forth. And it wasn't very harmonious and I'm sure I'll never worry. If I would have known David Fincher was going to be David Fincher, I probably would have said, well, you do whatever you want, David. Just use me in one of your future movies. Ripley is a gay icon. I'm not sure why. Sharon said that there was a big explosion of gay rights in uh, 1992. But for some reason, despite the fact that she's been a strong female character, maybe the best strong female character in cinema for two fantastic movies suddenly shaving her head and punching rapists makes Ripley a gay icon like what you didn't like her when she had hair I, I, I don't get that do, do not get why suddenly she became a gay icon at this point I didn't say that there was a, a, a big outpouring of gay rights at that particular point what I meant was that at that time the um, the imagery that was prominent in some gay media um, I'm guessing that my exposure to it at that time was fairly limited but there seemed to be like a lot of the magazines and things for lesbians were very focused on the overalls and shaven headed look and, and one thing I did say was that the, the act of choosing not to have hair because a woman's hair is usually considered to be sort of, you know, every every woman who has long or longish hair, it, that's that's sort of considered to be her beauty. There's always been this this thing in uh, literature with uh, female characters that it's lamentable if they lose their hair because that's their their beauty. And a character who chooses not to have hair or who is shown without hair is kind of rejecting that image quite resoundedly. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. yeah. But, but I agree she did, with you. She did shave it off because of giant head lice, not yes, because she of did, any notion. Very practical reason, music. and and I do agree with you that she was incredibly strong and um, and resilient and. Uh, well, she was the avenging mother in Aliens. I, I don't get why that should not. That the entire gay community shouldn't rally around her and go, yes. This is more of what we want to see in cinema, for goodness sake. Yeah, and you, you did mention that maybe it was the fact that she um, fought off potential rapists, but she doesn't. She, she, um, what Dylan. Did, Dylan comes and smacks them off her with a pipe. <laughs> a metal pipe. Which is uh, symbolic. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, she does punch that one guy. She doesn't just run off crying, she punches that one guy. I, I don't know. It's, it's a thorny area we're getting into, but... Um, 
I, I just don't like immediate, shallow, apparently shallow connections that people sort of forge. I could be wrong. There may have been a lot more depth to it that people found in Alien 3. It may simply be the fact that there wasn't a lot going on in terms of um, lesbian iconography at that point, and frankly, anybody who appeared to be vaguely rejecting the patriarchal um, uh, notion of attractiveness was going to be grabbed for, yes, this is one of ours, we're having that one. Okay. She has sex with Clements, and only Clements, in the entire series. She seems quite attracted to Hicks. Maybe that's why they didn't seize on her before. Okay, right. The scene with Bishop is actually, we're going back a little bit here, but the scene with Bishop where she gets him uh, out and uh, it's sort of a, um, a callback to the scene with Ash in the first uh, Alien is actually really good. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, short, powerful moment where it's her only window to the past and he's pretty much begging her for death but in a very dignified way. And Lance Henriksen comports himself excellently here, despite the fact that it's actually only his voice. This was all just a, an animatronic puppet. Which doesn't look that great. Um, I, I would have rather they did they uh, did the same thing they did with Ash in the mm. first film, um, because that puppet looks like a puppet. Like it's a, it's the same problem Terminator has uh, with mm. certain scenes mm. where I'm sorry, but that's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's a rubber face. Oh, the bit after he cuts his eye out is yeah. Uh, there's an appalling picture of him. It's like. We could do it. Yeah, you can do it, but wouldn't you just like to just put the sunglasses on him and make it look... Yeah, and then they cut to the next bit and it looks a lot better because it's yeah. actually him. And it was an interesting choice, kind of an odd choice, I thought, to make because they had Lance Henriksen right there. Why didn't they just stick him through the table? I think they were just... Again, it was like with the Terminus. They were just seeing if they could. Yeah. You've got to kind of push that, but unfortunately it means that the, the steps on the way up to the top of the pyramid are going to be a bit rocky. Also, as well, don't forget that he was in the EEV, and then obviously the impacts and everything, so he's not going to, if anything, his head's not going to be completely intact. Dude, you get yeah. in the cart before the horse, he was written like that. They could have said Bishop's fine, he just for some reason won't work. Yeah. And also, Sorry, like, James. <laughs> I don't want to step through any being smashed up like that doesn't automatically mean that all the muscles in your body start working like pistons and <laughs> wires and stuff like that. It just it doesn't seem like a natural. It there's not a natural link between those two things. I mm. see Lan, Lance Hendrickson and I see a puppet. They're not they're not the same things for me. But I'm being picky. Okay, uh, talking about Bishop. Uh, should we refer briefly to Bishop 2 as he appears in this film? Yeah. Um, his presence was nice, I <laughs> suppose. Um, it, it does. It, it's nice to know that that guy is so arrogant, so arrogant <laughs> that he would make a robot that looks exactly the same as him. It's like, wh what ego do you have? Jesus. I have a theory on who Bishop 2 is. There is a feasible explanation for the Wayland family that allows all seven of these films to be in continuity. Charles Bishop Wayland, born in 1940 and aged 64 in 2004, the year he meets the Predators in Alien vs. Predator. He is obsessed with aliens, something that before he dies he passes on to his grandson. Peter Wayland, born in 1993, is 30 at the TED conference in 2023 and just shy of 100 years old in 2093, the year Prometheus makes contact with the engineers depending on how long he was frozen. 
After his death, the Utani Corporation, who have possessed Predator technology for 86 years since Alien vs. Predator Requiem, swoop in and merge with the Wayland Corporation. However, Vickers had a son we'll call Bob, who inherits that side of the family business when he comes of age. In 29 years, AD 2122, he is running half of Wayland Utani when the crew of the Nostromo encounters the creatures on LV 426. Eleven years later, in 2133, his son is born and christened Carl Bishop Wayland. Forty-six years later, in 2179, a relatively new model of Hyperdyne Systems artificial person has been on the market for some time, named Bishop and using Carl as a template. A Bishop model is sent off with the team of Colonial Marines. Their remit is to bring back a Xenomorph. Among them is Ellen Ripley. Their party is wiped out. Carl himself travels to Fury 161 soon afterwards when it appears that Ripley has survived and is bringing a xenomorph queen to term. She declines his offer to extract the creature and spare her life, throwing herself into a blast furnace and taking the queen with her. One of the prison guards knocks Carl's ear almost completely off his head. Then in the video game Aliens vs Predator, that's the one that was on 360 and PS3 a few years ago, Carl, his ear fixed, sends a team of marines into a colony that appears to have stumbled on an ancient predator pyramid, unleashing the xenomorphs. The team is wiped out and the site destroyed, but through it, Carl acquires the location to the alien homeworld. 200 years later, the Wayland yutani company is no more, the Earth is a shithole, but the human race still survives. Then a bunch of idiots clone Ellen Ripley so that they can extract a queen from her and study the species for possible weaponization applications. It does not go well. Uh, Bishop 2 is uh, Charles Bishop Whalen from Alien vs. Predator's great-great-grandson. Oh my god. That's my theory. That's a good theory, man. No, I, t- I totally... Well, like, with you explaining it like that, I can I can totally see it. I, I do, it like do they ever say it's... Do they ever say he's Wayland at all? No. No, no, there's no, they never said the word Wayland along the same time. Okay. So... This is all AVP's fault, then. Because <laughs> only, it only doesn't make sense when AVP gets introduced. The reason why he has become Wayland in people's minds is because of AVP. Yeah. If AVP didn't exist, he'd just be some R&D guy who uh, happened to make a bishop. Well, there's no necessary link that given in the films between Charles Bishop Wayland and AVP and uh, Peter Wayland. But then again, we already know that Ridley Scott hates all the other Alien films. Does he hate all of them? Because I swear he said Aliens was alright. I think he likes. He, I think he said Aliens is alright. Yeah. Grudgingly, in that British way. After all of the shenanigans of chasing bald men around and killing them randomly, um, the alien gets thrown into the lead press and Ripley kills it with water and there's that joyful moment where it explodes. But then she sacrifices herself and somehow for me, despite all of the crap that's gone on in this film, it pulls it back from the edge and it actually makes it about something more. Because when Ripley falls backwards on purpose after being given a way out... She could have taken the coward's way out, just given them their alien, just fuck it, I, I want to live. But she doesn't. Uh, partly because she has had so much taken away from her that she doesn't want to live, but mostly because she absolutely cannot. She has fought and fought to make sure that this thing doesn't get off-world. 
and so it's not going to. And I love this moment, and it's genuinely heartbreaking for me. Not only that, she has absolutely no reason to trust that they are going to do what they say they are going to do at this point. Like, mm. it's she, she's probably going to die even if she gives herself over to them. So, I mean, yeah. why not do it on your terms? I think that's absolutely what she would have done. Yeah. She's, she's right not to trust them. The, the chances are they'll, they'll sacrifice her to make sure the alien survives. Yeah. Uh, I think look what they do to her later. I mean... Uh, yeah, and, yeah, I think she's probably bang on the money there. So, uh, yeah, she, well, she, she doesn't trust, the, trust any of them. To, to do the right thing with the alien at all. It bursts out of her less than a minute after she makes the decision anyway, so they couldn't even possibly have gotten her to Medibay in that time. So she made the right choice. And also uh, Bishop 2's reactions of... <gasps> do suggest that he maybe cared a bit more about the Queen than he did about Ripley. And then uh, you get the full circle of the fact that Lance Henriksen looked shifty as all hell in Aliens but then turned out to be a good, a good person, despite being in a synthetic. And now suddenly, all of that shiftiness is... No, it's valid, because he really is that shifty in, in, as a human. I wondered whether the emergence of the alien at that point was actually triggered by her jumping, whether it, in some way it could feel the heat and was just doing the... like rats chewing their way through people when you put them under a bucket and torch the bucket. Maybe so. No, I, I think that's a valid theory. Birthing too early just so it has a chance of survival, mm. um, yeah. even though it was doomed. Like there's, unless it can magically spawn wings, I think it was done for. Oh, yes. <laughs> but the, the scene where she's cl- clutching it to her breast is very symbolic, and, and her going backwards into the flames in a cruciform almost is... I mean, she's already done the cruciform against the, uh, the the wall of the cage when she asked Dylan to kill her. Uh, it's easy symbolism, but it's nonetheless powerful. And uh, the, the music from Elliot Goldenhauer is incredibly haunting. And I saw this when I was, what, 12, 13 years old, and it really stuck with me, this bit, because I've been used to sort of action films where the hero always survives. So this was one of my first sad endings, and, and like, it's, it's kind of haunted me since then. How much more emotional would it have been if Newt was standing there watching Ripley do it, though? Like, yeah. I just thought about that. It's just... It, it, you, could have, you could have had a character that genuinely cared about Ripley and her fate be in that situation and watch her make that decision. Mm-hmm. It would have... That scene does have impact, uh, impact already, but that would have added so much more. Would it not have made it more of a tough decision for Ripley if she had something to come back to? Yeah, some conflict there as well. Keep Hicks and Newt alive and then make her sacrifice truly meaningful. If you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. But as it is, the film itself is a sad, sad requiem for the character of Ellen Ripley. And and it's it's almost like she has gone to hell at this point. and, And she's gone to this most inhospitable, horrible, hateful cold place imaginable and the aliens there too so effectively her suicide and taking herself out of it it can only go up from there Uh, even oblivion is preferable to that
The assembly cut. A lot of people actually prefer of Alien 3. Now, for me, there's a very good reason why uh, I don't. They extend the middle. The middle is the least good bit. Uh, and the other major uh, important thing, aside from not really adding to anything really in terms of characterization, adding a lot of extra time, like 33 minutes, to an already like excruciatingly long film, it then fluffs the ending. Yeah, that's the- what I was going to say, because um, I-, I watched the assembly, Matt and I both did watch the assembly cut, and yeah, the ending is, um, the alien never bursts out. Oh, she just kind of goes... They, they even, I mean, they screw up the actual editing of that scene, so it doesn't even fit with the same music. So it's, they completely bug it up. Did you then, were you then able to watch the scene as it's originally shot, or as it was originally done in the first theatrical uh, one? I didn't know. Ooh. I recommend I did, I've seen it before, so I, I am aware of the difference. Well, I mean, you, you bought the swanky Blu-ray box set, you might as well. Just check, just check out the last five minutes or so. It's, it's just so much better edited together. And, and the, the queen coming out of her is... It's an important... In the blackest kind of way, it's the orgasm of the movie. And you take that out, and it's like a... Uh, section. So, uh, anyone else on Alien 3? I think we've covered it, to be honest. I think so, too. Could have, should have been better. Could have, yeah. Try better next time. It really did bugger up the series, <laughs> though, because it... They would try. They had to kill Ripley to just put a cap on that trilogy, and then they resurrected her for no real reason other than desperation. This was a, a series of bad ideas, and it would have been better if they just hadn't made the film, because then at least we'd have got the ending from Aliens. It just you know cuts. There were other characters you could interact with these xenomorphs. It is feasible, and you could even make them female. Just a hint. Okay, so that's it from us. We're gonna carry on and talk about Alien Resurrection now that'll be out this Sunday I'd like to thank my guests Joshua Garrity Matt Ramsey Sharon Shaw Leah Haydu and James Perkins thank you very much thank you for having us you're welcome since the first episode of this series I've been signing off with the tagline from the next film this one is absolutely genuine and I figured it was appropriate you've been listening to Digital Gonzo I've been Alex Shaw see you on Sunday for a review of Alien Resurrection pray you die first (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Die before seeing this film. <laughs> what a stupid tagline! Appropriate, okay. though. I kind of yeah. wish I had. <laughs> Jesus, I wish I had. Glover, pretty much the same as he is in uh, American Werewolf in London. Loudmouthed Norman. <laughs> Norman? <laughs> yeah. Loudmouthed Northern won't listen to anyone else. I was going to say, so it's kind of like a form of institutional. Uh, uh, can I speak English today, please? You may. Uh, <laughs> so it's a form of um, institutional. I can't say this word. Institutionalization. Institutionalization. <laughs> it's be at the back, the right at the end of the podcast, isn't it? Um, I've met, you know, honestly, Leah. You won't have heard the Prometheus show yet. No outtakes. You not being there. No outtakes. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs>
<laughs> or You're insulted, I'm not sure. <laughs> Carry on, Josh. So it was a form of institution... Ah. What is that <laughs> Just don't say it. It's not worth it. Okay, it's not worth it. Move on. I can't say, I can't say words. It's you might say, Josh, it's a form of institutionalization. Yes, Alex, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that they've gone back uh, to the smooth-headed alien. Mm. I know Matt likes the ridge head, but I prefer the smooth head, because I'm like that. Um... The, are, are the uh, aliens in Aliens ribbed for Matt's pleasure? Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> they are. Can't unthink that now. Thank you. It's suggested that the alien is eating them, because there's a scene where it, the alien is, like, clearly, you know, having lunch on some guy. <laughs> <laughs> is it a hot lunch? <laughs> Ew! <laughs> <laughs> There's a scene where the alien is clearly eating somebody uh, with the. But anyway, is he pulling a skeleton out? I can't think clearly now. Come on, I know exactly what you're doing.